Life's so full on. I've been working on this deck for ages. These steaks don't cook themselves, you know. Life's good with a Trex deck. Composite decking made from 95% recycled materials that won't rot, stain or fade. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. This is your sporting life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Yes, it is that time of the week again where we celebrate the life of a person who has been vitally involved in Australian sport, all with thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And my guest on the program this morning is one of the best-known names in Australian sport, Australian racing in particular. He has won just about everything there is to win in this country, and he's also taken Australian racing onto the world stage. His name is David Hayes, and I'm delighted to have David as my guest on the program. David, welcome to you. Good morning, Pete. Nice to be on the show. It's lovely to have you. Now, uh, we're at that time of the year where the weather is changing a little bit. Is it any easier to get out of bed at about 3 o'clock in the morning, as you generally do, when the weather turns a little bit? Look, it's never never easy that you just have to do it. Um, once you're up, it's wonderful. And especially at this time of year, because it's sort of not... It's days, daylight's breaking at about 6.15 rather than 7.30, so it's a lot more pleasant. Have you got any tricks, David, that you've learned over the years to make sure that you don't hit the snooze button and that you bounce out of bed, or do you ever actually bounce out of bed? Uh, look, I, if you've got an exciting fast horse that's going to do something that morning, uh, that often makes it easier, but it's just really mind over matter. You just get up and... Uh, you know, it's not just me that does it. There's thousands of people do it at the same time. So I just say everyone else is doing it, so so do I. You mentioned the fact, David, that when you're up, it is fantastic. And there is something about the first light in the morning with those magnificent, noble creatures and, and the steam coming from their nostrils. There, there's just something majestic about seeing them first light of day. Hey, look, I, I just think it's the best time of the day. And I think most people that do the early mornings, especially with racehorses, um, they it sweats you up. It's it's a wonderful place to be. Now. Uh, speaking of early mornings, I want to ask you a question that I've been asked hundreds of times, and I don't know that there's a definitive answer, but I'm sure you've been asked this question hundreds of times as well. Why do racehorse trainers train racehorses at such an ungodly hour of the morning? What's the reason behind it? Uh, look, there's not one reason. It's a number of reasons. Uh, probably the most um, obvious one is that these days we race every day and you have to work. You probably have about 5% of your stable running and 95% have to be worked before you go to the races. So that's so you have to start early to get it done. Another reason is that on the public tracks, um, trainers have to compete for the... Um, grass so you're you're trying to get the your best horses on the unused grass and the best surface um it, and a lot of people work a couple of jobs so they get their horsework done first do their work and then come back that's probably more an older reason and then one of the main reasons is you work the horse in the morning and the people can get on the tracks in the day to repair them because they really do damage the tracks and wear them chop them up by using them 
David, there's quite a few lessons. Yeah, you mentioned the constant nature of racing now. It's very different from what it used to be like, even going back 20 years ago. It's just a, it's a never-ending cycle. Do you have to learn to delegate uh, when racing is so constant as it is these days when you're the head man of the operation? Yeah, well, we basically... It's imp- if you're going to every race meeting to watch every horse run, you're neglecting the majority of horses at home. Someone, you know, so uh, we've got um, three trainers and then some wonderful assistants. Uh, so between us all, we rotate it, and it's still very, very busy. But um, I generally go racing twice a week, and most of the trainers in in my setup race twice or three times a week. Do you still love it, or is it a job, or is it a combination of both? I oh, look, look. It's a really, it, it, it's a job, but it's my hobby as well. So time goes pretty quickly. Um, the only time I get a little bit down is if you have horses that are running below par when you really think they'll run well, um, because you're managing so much disappointment when that happens. And horses lose. Most horses lose more than they win. So you do a lot of um, managing disappointment. You talked about when you're on the big tracks and if you train at Flemington as everybody used to or Randwick or, or the big training complexes that you need to get first use of the track. Is that part of the reason that in recent times that uh, the big trainers have now got their own properties and they can basically run their own race as you have done with Lindsay Park previously in South Australia and now Lindsay Park at Euroa? Yeah, my late father was probably the first to do it and, you know, did it incredibly successful. And I moved Lindsay Park, Angerston to Lindsay Park, Yeroa, and have built a new version of the Lindsay Park. And it's starting to be very successful um, and it'll get stronger and better over the next few years. But just having your own facility to manage your own gallops to, to, to work where you want to at what time, I think it's a really, it's, a, it's not essential, but it's a big help. I think it's a bit of an advantage. Is it better for the horses? Do you see that, David, in the horses? And um, we often talk about horses being happy in what they do, and you've seen horses that are unhappy when they get in a certain environment. Do you see the change from training at a big establishment such as a Flemington or a Randwick compared to where you are now? It's funny. uh, I would say eight out of ten horses seem more relaxed and happy up here in the country. Um, You know, they can go out in the day paddocks during the day, um, we've got five different tracks, water walkers, swimming pools. So we can give them a lot of variation, which you can't give in the city. But then there's 20% of horses that actually enjoy the hustle and bustle of being trained at Flemington. So we've got two facilities. We like to run our horses out of Flemington, especially when they're in the city so they don't have to travel too far race days. But, but often we have horses that aren't firing out of the country Um you know, a smaller percentage that need that stimulation of the city. So we're very lucky at Lindsay Park. We've got the best of both worlds. And you've also got stables all over the place. You mentioned at Flemington, but you've got Australia covered. This is not only um, trying to get the best out of racehorses and make them run fast when they're entered in races, but this is a massive business that you run day to day as well. Yeah, we employ 151 people. Wow. And, and, uh, it certainly um, is full on. I get a lot of help from my wife running the business. Uh, she keeps an eye on the business with our CEO, Marino Angelini. 
so I don't have to worry too much about it. Um, I just we just got to make sure that we're performing up to standard on the track with Tom and Ben. How's Prue going, by the way? And uh, secondary question to that, David: Who's the boss? Are you the boss, or is Prue the boss? Uh, clearly, uh, she runs the show. I think these days, <laughs> uh, and um, it works well for us. But. Uh, on the practical stuff, I'm probably the boss, and then on the business side of things, she does a much better job at it than me, so I don't even pretend to be a businessman. Uh, that's a very good diplomatic answer, and that should get you plenty of brownie points uh, going <laughs> forward. Um, you've also, as well as keeping an eye on horses, which you do for a living, but you you take a bit of an interest in footy these days because you've got a bit of a family connection. There's a bit of football talent in your family, and we might even touch on your football talent a little bit later in the program. <laughs> Yes, I've got the the twins, uh, uh, Will and JD. Will just finished a year in the VFL and ran, I think, equal third or fifth in the JJ list and, and made the VFL team of the year, which was a big thrill. And um, we're hoping he gets pretty close to drafted this year. So fingers crossed. And JD, his identical twin brother, had a two-year contract with the Bulldogs uh, but left and came up and was the youngest captain coach for Euroa because he didn't believe that Will or JD were good enough to probably make it. But with the year Will's had has been a late maturer, um, it's got JD thinking because he's always been as good as Will. Have you got a preference, David, where you'd like Will to finish up or if he just plays at the top level and realises his dream, that's enough? I think if he plays... I think when you're going to the draft... Uh, Beggars can't be choosers. We'd love him to be in a Victorian club, of course. Uh, the Bulldogs, he knows everyone there, and uh, they've been good to him, and he's been very good to them. That'd be probably a dream come true for Will if he if he got on their list. Do you ever get the chance of going to the footy, David? Because your job is so full on, uh, do you get to catch a game or two throughout the season? Yeah, I, I, I see quite a few of the games because they're often on a Sunday in the VFL, or or they're a night game. So, um, and in midwinter, I, I go I go midweek racing a bit and don't race on weekends. Uh, but, but of course, not at this time of year. But Will's team hasn't made the final, and neither has JD. So uh, it's full of racing now. Now, I hinted about the fact that I was going to touch on your football ability later in the show. Why don't we do it now? Seeing we're talking about football, did you win a premiership at under 19s level? Yeah, I was in a. Uh, like a TAC premiership in the Central's under-19s when they have under-19s reserves and league sides. Central Districts, when the VFL was not the AFL, footy in South Australia was pretty big. And I played the premiership side and had a year in the reserves. And then my uh, dad retired me. He came and watched me play one day. <laughs> he, 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 um, I was playing centre-half forward against Port Adelaide. Had a, ba- a bit of a quiet one. And he said to me after the game, he said, uh, what do we tell the owners if you've got a Melbourne-class source? I said, oh, terrific and lot to look forward to. He said, what do you tell them if you've got an Adelaide-class source? Well, you never know. He might improve and he could end up in the city. <laughs> what do you tell them if it's a country horse? Probably should sell it and move it on. And he said, I think you should retire. <laughs> <laughs> How did that advice go down when you got it from CS? Oh, he was unwell at the time. And he was very, and, and him and Peter had had a um, parting of ways. And he, Dad was very keen to get me to step up and, 
I was only 21 but to be his right-hand man. So it was a great opportunity for me. I always loved my racing. I loved my football. And um, it was an easy decision in the end. You weren't only a good footballer, David, and playing in a premiership team. Uh, you were also pretty good at athletics um, early in your life. Did an athletic career beckon you at any stage? Uh, no. I, I, I was third in the Nationals in triple jump and during an and under-20 long jump. Uh, I was a state champion and in the 400 relay team. But then when you get to Nationals, I'd get um, well and truly beaten. And then I'd watch the people that beat me in Olympics and they would get flogged. So I decided it, we were just too far off the pace. Uh, I was a capable athlete, but not not national, not uh, world-class. So there was no money in it. So I uh, was happy to give up my ass. So dabbling in lots of pursuits and, and being on the periphery, if you like, if you call winning a premiership being on the periphery, but was it always going to be racing? Was racing always going to be your life because of being born into that famous family? Yeah, Dad would have never push me into it if I wasn't really into my racing. I, I, I think it's a uh, too big a commitment to treat it like a job. You've got to treat it like your life. And I've been exactly the same with my boys. Uh, uh, men's already working with me and the two boys are very keen to get into their racing. They're just finishing their university. They've probably taken a year too long doing it, finishing their university. They're, probably their rankings are racing football university. <laughs> um, but being such a... Um, I'm relatively young, quite healthy. I've got Ben helping me and Tom. Um, I'm letting the boys exhaust their football while doing their uni but they're very capable riders and they're a big around the stable um, when it's not footy season I want to ask you about the ability to see something in a horse your father was mentioned in the same breath well they were the big three weren't they there was CS there was TJ Smith and there was Bart and they often said about those three people in particular that they saw something in horses that nobody else could see quite often. Is that something that CS taught you to see, David, or is it a natural gift that evolves over time? I always say it's a, I think there's a, it's a gift that some people, it comes to them easier. But I, I'd say if someone asked me to draw you, I couldn't do it. It's just not my gift. Mm. Um, uh, but it, But... There's a lot, some people, a small percentage of people could draw you in that and people would know it's you. Um, so it came to me pretty naturally um, and I had a lot of guidance from my father in the early days and, and you always learn by your mistakes and your experiences. But uh, Dad was a terrific mentor and, we're, and the family's so proud of him that he's been inducted as a legend in the Hall of Fame. And... Uh, uh, we were really um, proud of him and that, that, that he was because I think there's only three, TJ, Bart and Dad in the training ranks anyway. Yeah, three of the very greatest, not only here in Australia, but indeed uh, world-regarded in their profession. David, we'll take our first break. When we come back, I'll talk about those early days at Angerston and your early memories and some of the great horses you were involved with early on. David Hayes is my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives. More with David coming up after the break. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. 
What a pleasure it is to have David Hayes as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. What are your early memories, your first involvements with horses and some of the horses that CS had, David, that uh, stand out still in your memory? Um, there, there was a, a really great handicapper called Romantic Son. He was one of Dad's favourites and he used to ride him a little bit himself. I can remember Dad riding him and taking me when I was riding the ponies uh, with old Romantic Son. And he won races. He was a Group 1 performer. He won at Goodwood and races like that. I think he won 25 races. Um, of course, Haymaker, when my sister let him in when he won the Derby and Dad part-owned him with, with Mum, and and friends and the other horse that really really sticks in my mind was Dogsify, um, mm. especially when he kept coming from last and charging home. He was such a, I, th- I think he's one of the all-time greats, but he only lasted such a short time. But uh, that really uh, he, he created a lot of interest. Racing is such an emotional sport, and uh, I've shed a tear at the races a few times over the years. But I remember that day in particular with Dulcify in that Melbourne Cup of 1979. And it was just, it was one of the saddest things that I've ever seen in sport. It was just awful. Yeah, he'd, he'd beaten uh, Hyperno by nine or 11 lengths in the Cox Plate, one of the easiest wins ever. And I was at boarding school at the time and Dad and Mum got permission because Dad hadn't won a Melbourne Cup at that stage and he was that confident he would win the Melbourne Cup. Um, he got me to fly over. And I remember sitting with him in the grandstand and and when everything unfolded, he got, he was pulled up and galloped on. And it was a really um, sad time for the family and it was really sad to see how upset Dad was. It actually happened, I think, over on the riverside, David, didn't it? It was about the, the 1800 or the 1600, but the horse had just such a will to, to keep racing that he kept on going until he couldn't go any further, and Brent pulled him up at the top of the straight, and I'll never forget that side of him standing at the top of the Flemington straight. Yeah, what happened, I think it was about the mile, and then Brent, I think, um, realised at Chiquita Lodge when he expected him to be really travelling into the race. He thought something's not quite right here. And being a Melbourne Cup, he, he, he was hoping he was wrong. And coming into the straight, he had to pull him up. And um, the rest was unfortunate history. They say in the training ranks when you've got a big operation that you can't get close to horses. But um, that horse was very special. As you said, your father was extremely upset about the whole thing. He um, uh, took him a long time to recover from that. I think it knocked him around for a little bit. Yeah, Would it, that be it, fair? It, it, yeah, it, he was very flat. He was brave in public, but he was very flat. And he, the, one of the things was that uh, he cost $3,000. He was such a wonderful horse, and he raced it with great friends. And he really felt that if he couldn't win the Melbourne Cup with that horse, um, he may never win the Melbourne Cup. And then as history came out, he won it the next year with a 50-to-1 shot. So... Um, that's what happens. So he he um, he moved on, and you have to. But uh, he he we've got photos all around the house still of Dulcify. 
And that 50 to 1 shot you're talking about was Beldale Ball. And um, you mentioned, or I mentioned Brent Thompson before, and let's see, of course, ride Beldale Ball. What about the great characters in the jockeys' ranks as you were a young man just starting to emerge in the sport? Who were the jockeys who made a bit of an impression on you? Um, I, like in my early days, uh, Ron Hutchison used to come and stay with us from, mm. uh, from when he was riding in England for a long time. Um, Obviously, John Stocker, uh, he, he was always a quiet fellow, but uh, a class rider that when I was young and impressionable, I used to follow a lot. Uh, Jim Courtney was another rider that um, was the stable rider for Dad forever and was riding for me when I started. Uh, of course, uh, there was uh, Peter Hutchison and Michael Clark. Uh, yeah, we've just had a lot of... I'm sure I'm missing a lot of riders too. I was a huge fan of Roy Higgins. Never rode for Dad, but he used to beat us a lot. So uh, <laughs> in that era, they were great riders. Ronnie Quinton, you know, uh, Mick Dittman. You know, on their day, they're all very good, and occasionally they were very bad. <laughs> um, so did you um, – I'll, I'll ask you later on when you became a trainer in your own right about um, some of the conversations that you've had with jockeys after races. Did you ever see your dad give a jockey a real cook? Um, I was, I, B Thompson was on the end of a couple Righto. and, and, uh, Brent was a little bit older than me, still is. And, uh, he, he got a couple of Brent described as group one sprays for my father. <laughs> um, the dad was, a, would, it would, wouldn't be what happened on the day. It would be what happened later. Yeah. Because one he, of the uh, old, he, he wouldn't do it publicly very often. Yeah. He, he, he would, uh, he was, he had a bit of a temp, temper. Um, but he could control it and produce it when needed. Well, a lot of people would have liked that uh, uh, characteristic over the years, David, because they say don't make decisions on race days, but a lot of people do jump to conclusions five minutes after a race is run. Yeah, it's sort of, um, it's too reactive. Uh, I often say when I'm not happy with a rider, have a look at the replay and talk to me in 10 minutes, see what you think. Have a look what I was looking at. And, and, they can sometimes fully explain it and other times they've just made a mistake. And, you know, there's a lot of good tennis players hit their forehands out and, and a lot of footballers miss easy goals and jockeys can muck it up as well. But uh, you shouldn't read too much into it. It's just a sporting mistake. Yeah, even Roger Federer misses the occasional backhand, doesn't he? Um, yes. What about uh, the period where there was Beldale Bore, there was At to Lake, there was so much more, but the, the transition that was happening for you to take over the reins, was that always a, a thing that was set in place and it was going to be a gradual thing that would happen at a certain time or did it just organically evolve that um, you took over? Um, when I was about 23 Dad was gradually getting more and more sick and he was finding it very hard to keep up and get around all the horses. I think if the era of partnerships was around, he would have trained till he, was, till he died. But um, he was an unaffected... But he had to step down because he physically couldn't do it and he prepared the owners and made sure we had the right team of horses um, to, to make sure I kicked off with a bang and he certainly did that. Um he was a great planner, and and uh, um, he, he prepared all the owners. Robert Sangster, who was our biggest owner at the time, was very, very happy for me to do the training. And in the last year of Dad's training, um, he wasn't doing a lot of it. 
he, he because he physically was too unwell. So you take over the Lindsay Park operation, one of the biggest operations in Australia in the 1990-91 season, and you talked about starting with a bang. Well, you were able to do that because one of the greatest horses you ever had was around at that time. Better loosen up. What are your memories of that great champion? Oh, well, he was a terrific horse. Um, he, he, Dad, he had a great run in Dad's last year. I think he won three or four group ones. And then I got him for that spring, and he won everything we put him in and won the Cox Plate, of course, which was my first group one. And and then he went to Japan and won that race, which was the richest race in the world, and I think he's the only Australian horse to win it. Then he came back and was dominant in the Melbourne autumn, and then unfortunately Bodie's tendon getting ready for the BMW. But he's a horse um, I think would have been up with all the all-time greats, a bit like Dogs of Fire, had his career cut short by a nasty bow tendon. I think, you know, the, the, the all-time greats that we're seeing at the moment, what's so special about them is they can do it for so long. They've done it for three or four years without injury, uh, which is a credit to their trainers. That win in Japan you spoke about, was that one of your proudest moments to be able to prove yourself on the world stage as well as proving yourself on the domestic stage? Yeah, it was a bit of frontier land in those days. Um, I, one, I didn't realise how good the Japanese were before I went there. And racing wasn't as worldly as it is now. It's not so international. So um, to do it over there, the money was huge. But with hindsight, as I've got older and I've started to realise what a magnificent achievement it was. So, um, uh, you know, when we won, it, it was 150,000 people at the races and we're standing on like a an Olympic rostrum. It was like as if you'd won an Olympic Games. Uh, they gave you all these wonderful trophies and, and medals. And um, it was on in the middle of the cricket. And it was a tight test, evidently. And it got great exposure because Brian Martin's wonderful call yeah. um, came on on the six o'clock news. And they played it live. So it got an incredible amount of exposure, which it probably wouldn't have got in the modern day. People don't realise what a difficult task it is to take horses overseas and win, but going back in that era, the era there weren't the, um, the advantages that you may have with training facilities and that sort of thing. It was evidenced by the fact that Saintly went over there a few years later and almost died with travel sickness. It is simply a very difficult task to be able to take a horse to a different country and win. That was a great feather in your cap. Yeah, you need a very special horse and then everything to go right. And what I find with travelling horses is not always do you have great success when you travel them, but when they come back, they're often much better. They improve from experience. They don't go backwards. I don't think I've had a horse that's gone away and never come back after a trip. Interesting, um, because a lot of people have complained about that over the years, that horses have gone overseas and, and never been the same horse when they came back, but you found it the opposite way. Well, j- just recently, um, Fatmail was successful in Dubai, lost his form over there, came back here, and he won the Carline Stakes the other day and will be one of the favourites in the Moyer, and I think he's better now than he was before he left. Uh, even a horse like Daxar went to Hong Kong, bombed out, came back and won the Ranvet. Farrar came back and won a Caulfield Cup. Um, 
yeah, I, I have no hesitation to travel a horse. I've never had a bet. I haven't sometimes had the success I've wanted in the competition, but they've always come back and performed extremely well at the highest level here. You've spoken about some of those great races, the Cox Plate, the Caulfield Cup, the Australian Cup, all the big races, the slipper that you've won over the years. But the Melbourne Cup is Australia's race. It thrust you into the national consciousness. And I remember back in 1994, standing out in the middle of Flemington on those mornings we were talking about with you, and you'd, uh, I think, occasionally stand up on those steeplechase uh, fences in the middle and keep yeah. an eye on your charges. Um, and then along came a horse called Jern. And... Did his win change your life in lots of ways, David? Well, it did in a funny way because um, that that carnival, we'd have a fantastic carnival. We'd, we'd won, I think, except the Oaks, all, all the major races. And um, the race before or after the Melbourne Cup, the Hong Kong Jockey Club plate, we won. And the boss of the jockey club gave me the trophy and offered me a job in Hong Kong. And uh, I thought he was joking, uh, but he was quite serious, General Watkins. And that really did change my life because after winning the Melbourne Cup and having such a blockbuster season, I did the unthinkable and take up a licence in Hong Kong, I left. And the hardest thing about leaving was convincing Dad that it was a good idea. Mm. Um... So that really did change our life. We, We went to Hong Kong with four children under five and uh, Prue had to be very adaptable but we loved our time there. I'll explore more about Hong Kong on the other side of the break but I, I just want to talk more about the Melbourne Cup and the the change that it does have on your life and people talk about the Cox Plays being the purest race and there are probably better races for better horses than the Melbourne Cup but it's our race, it's the national race, it's the race that everybody knows was it the realisation of a dream in lots of ways when you accepted the Cup in the mounting out at Flemington in 1994? I, I, it really was, because there's something about the Melbourne Cup is that if no-one knows nothing about racing and you and they ask, oh, you're a horse trainer anywhere in the world, and you say, oh, I've won the Melbourne Cup, they prick their ears up because everyone knows it. And if you ask me if, there was, if I could win one more race in my life again, it would be the Melbourne Cup. Mm. Um, it's just getting so... It's got so much bigger in the recent times with the touring around Australia, the Cup, and the VRC have promoted it so wonderfully. Um, And it's a... You know, it's just such a big race now and an event. It's not more than a race, it's an event. So, um, yeah, it was life-changing to win it, and, God, I'd love to win it again. One last question on the Cup. The debate has raged since Vintage Crop won in 93 and Dermot Weld said it was the international two-mile championship of the world as to whether we've lost a bit of the identity because of the overseas horses coming out and, and seeking out the Cup. What's your viewpoint? Has the Cup got better or has it lost some of the character that it used to have? Oh, I think it's got better. It's on the world stage now. It was a to the purest in England, they would turn their nose up at a two-mile handicap being your biggest race. They couldn't believe it. Mm. Uh, now they all want to be part of it. And it's been Australia is a different place. The, the, you know, we used to just have a bunch of colonial stallions. Now we're very international, and our breeding and racing is the envy of the world. And part of the reason why it is is that Melbourne Cup has just given Australia 
so much international acknowledgement. And it is known throughout the world, and one of the places where it's watched is Hong Kong. You talked about your time in Hong Kong. We'll talk more about it when we come back on the other side of the break with David Hayes on a very special edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. And David Hayes is my guest this morning on This Is Your Sporting Life. Uh, David, just before we get to Hong Kong, there was one little achievement that I have glossed over a little bit. There was one particular day at Flemington, Derby Day, back in about 1991, I think, where you and I got uh, very familiar with each other because you kept on training every bloody winner. Yeah, I'd love to get those interviews again. We, <laughs> we, we broke a world record. I think we won six group and group one races on the day. And in those days, there was only eight. Um, so we were, we, and I didn't have runners in the other two races. So it, it was a huge thrill that day. It was a, a, a very, very special day. And in my first year of training, so um, I'll never forget it. So after so many achievements in Australia, you do take up that offer and head to Hong Kong. What did you learn about yourself as a racehorse trainer when you got to what is generally considered to be one of the hardest markets in world racing to conquer? Yeah, well, look, one of the things that I really wanted to do, I've had five great years in Australia, and um, I just wanted to be training away from Lindsay Park to prove myself away from my father and and all the support, wonderful support crew I have here. And I was ambitious. Um, I'd had a family agreement that I was going to buy my family out. And um, the only way I could do it was to go to Hong Kong. Uh, and we did that, and we went to go for five years, and we stayed ten. So it was a real success for, for Pru and I. Did you like the lifestyle? Uh, I uh, asked this question because, as you know, Jenny Chapman is a great friend of mine and we used to do Melbourne Cups together and Jen went over there in the early 90s and said she'd stay for a few years. She's still there. Uh, She loves it there. That's 20 years, I think. Yes. Um, Did you like it there? Did you like the lifestyle? Oh, we loved it. Um, We loved racing twice a week. Um, We loved the challenge of proving yourself on a completely foreign world stage. You had to adapt and you've been challenged in a different culture all the time. Uh, I'm a vi- victim on the Chinese food, so that was very easy. <laughs> and, and, and and Hong Kong, when you go there, you think, and I do it now, you think after three or four days, that's enough. But when you actually work in it and you get involved in the expat lifestyle, um, your time goes quickly and, and it was great. And if you ask me, would I do it again? Uh, if I had my time over, I definitely would. Is it as tough as it's made out to be? Is it dog-eat-dog dog over there? I, look, it's very. I was lucky. I was in the top four trainers and won the premiership a couple of times and was runner-up the other years. Um, so if you can get in the top five, um, it's very hard to do. But if you can get into it, it's a great place to be. If you're outside the top five, it can be very dog-eat-dog trying to get up there. Um, there's a lot of trainers that go on there and failed and good trainers because they just haven't been able to adapt. Then there's other trainers like John Sires, who should have been born there. He, he, he's just been phenomenal there. So he adapted and he's a great trainer. But it's a very, very hard place uh, to reach the top. 
And while you were away and while you were conquering Hong Kong, the operation obviously continued back at home and your brother Peter took over the reins uh, for quite a while at Lindsay Park. Yeah, he he did me a huge favour, Pete. Um, As I said earlier, him and Dad never in the view of training. They had different views about training. Uh, They didn't see a lot eye to eye. Uh, so um, Peter came back as a favour for me and um, he did really well to uh, as a trainer at Lindsay Park and then Dad passed away and then Peter had that unfortunate plane accident and passed away as well in the space of one year and Tony McAvoy kindly took up the mantle, a great friend and he did very well but that was the catalyst to come home. We just needed a haze back at Lindsay Park. I remember talking to you at Flemington uh, on air the day or a couple of days after Peter's accident and there was a, just a complete pall over the entire racing industry. You were so good with your time that day because everybody wanted to talk to you and we wanted to remember your brother. How did you find out the news, David? Uh, I remember it clearly. I was, I was on a golf course and... You're not allowed to have phones, and for some reason my phone was on, and Mark Pilkington rang me, who was the racing manager for Lindsay Park at the time, and and he just told me straight, and I was hoping it was a mistake. And, of course, I came home um, that night from from, uh, Hong Kong and came into a barrage of press because everyone was, you know, wanting to know about the accident and everyone was wanting to know what if I was going to come straight home. And luckily, Tony stepped up and allowed me to have some completion in Hong Kong and train my last couple of years. And I came back under my ty- under my terms, and I had no regrets about coming home. One last thing about Peter's tragic death, and I spoke about that day at Flemington. The racing industry is very good at... Um, looking after their own interests. But when something happens to one of their own, they're also pretty good at wrapping their arms around the participants. And I suppose you saw that at the time. Oh, the VRC were just wonderful. They they put a race on for Peter. It was only one day after his death or two days after his death. And I think we actually... He won his own race. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, it was quite an emotional moment for the family and all, the, all his family and, and, and my family. And the, that was his last runner and it was a winner and it was a great way to go out. So eventually uh, the call comes and you come back to Australia, as you said, under your own terms. Was it like a second beginning for you? Was it after experiencing that such a different lifestyle in Hong Kong, what was it like to come back to the wide open spaces again of Australia? Did it feel all fresh to you when you came back? I had, I was uh, full of running when I got back. I, I just loved being at my own private property, doing my own thing and, and uh, Loved turning on the TV and watching football and listening to the radio and understanding it. It was just great to be home. Um, and then w- we came home and I had a really good team of horses around me, headed by Miss Finland. And we we had you know three or four really good years. And um, we won a Cox Plate with Old Phil G and Miss Finland won everything. And uh, there was not, lots of good horses who. I'm not mentioning, but uh, um, we had a great run. 
Speaking of uh, Foo, Fields of Omar, and you mentioned Brian Martin before, who was a guest on this program not that long ago. He probably, well, he wouldn't have been the best horse that you ever had, but was he the best competitor that you ever trained? Oh, I, I don't think at Mooney Valley I've had one more consistent or better. Maybe better loosen up. Yeah. And, uh, gee, I'd love to have Fieldsy in against Wanks. I'd back him to run second <laughs> this year. Uh, yeah, he was, but he no, was a marvel. He was retired um, sound. He had a history of unsoundness and, you know, was retired after winning his second Cox Plate and ran in uh, four or five of them and won one for Tony and went second for me and won one. So, wonderful horse um, and often overlooked. It was round. It was round about that time too, David, that you were restructuring the business somewhat, and and that was the forerunner to where you are now at Euroa. What was the thinking process behind what you were doing with your operation at that time? I what happened was I had um, four children being educated in Melbourne, so they're always going to have a lot of Melbourne friends. Melbourne racing was booming. Uh, Adelaide racing. I didn't think was big enough to support a business like Lindsay Park at the time. And I was a bit sick of the travelling every week, backwards and forwards to Melbourne, to Adelaide, and then driving up to the Valley. And I didn't think it was sustainable. So I thought I would do the brave thing and put Lindsay Park on the market and build another one up here at Euroa. And why we picked Euroa was we wanted the rolling hills like Lindsay Park uh, it's a property that's blessed with a lot of water. And my long-term ambition is to have a um, stable strong enough to support a good stable in Sydney. So, uh, and it's on the way to Sydney. So that were the main reasons why we did it. David, we're just about out of time. We're going to take our final break. And when we come back, we'll talk about another great accolade for you, joining your father in the Australian Racing Hall of Fame. And and what's ahead for David Hayes in the weeks to come and in the years to come? And we'll find out from David what the answers to those questions are when we come back with our final segment on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Our final segment with the champion trainer, David Hayes, on This Is Your Sporting Life. David, I mentioned that accolade when you were inducted into the Australian Racing Hall of Fame. The fact that you were in there with your dad must have been very special to you. It really was. I think I'm the youngest ever to be inducted. You were? long ago. I can't remember. But um, to be up there with dad, uh, it was terrific. That was a big honour. And, of course, that is something that is different to training winners of races. That is a preparation that goes on for months, weeks. But this is a body of work that lasts a lifetime, and this is recognition of everything that you've done in the racing industry, which makes it even more special, I guess. Yeah, it really does. Uh, you know, there's been so many young trainers that have worked at Lindsay Park over the years, and hopefully we can keep developing good young trainers. Well, you're doing that with your family members and uh, also with uh, various other people who've been under your umbrella. Uh, we're at the time where a lot of people's interest does turn to racing because of the spring coming up. What can we expect from you for this spring? Uh, well, last year we were lucky enough to own and win the Caulfield Cup with Boom Time. And I think if at this time, if you said that Boom Time would win, people would laugh at you. And he won a good Caulfield Cup. He's unfortunately gone sore this year. 
But I've got a, a couple for the handicaps, slightly called Recover Melbourne Cup, called Sing to Win and Ventura Storm, and a horse running on the weekend called Jamay. I'd say if I'm going to win a big one in the handicaps, those. But I'll, we're probably better in the sprints with Red Turk Warrior and Vega Magic. And I think I've got a really nice group of um, three-year-olds with Ocean Knight, Quafila. You know, they're all still emerging. Um, so, look, we've got a nice balance string with a lot of nice two-year-olds coming behind. So um, hopefully we'll be popping up in a few of the good ones. One thing that we've learned about you over the years and people who may not be familiar with you over the last hour of this chat, um, you are very methodical in everything you do. Do you have a strategy for how long you're going to be involved in this, uh, how long before you hand over the reins to your son or your nephew? Uh, is that in place or is it just take it as it comes? Um, I, I've got a sort of plan that my dad trained 104 Group 1 winners and I would like to match that. And I'm in the 90s if you count Hong Kong and I've got about 14 to go if you don't count Hong Kong. So... Um, my my ambition is to train as many Group 1 Australian winners as that and that'll probably be by the time I achieve that it'll be the stage where my boys and Tom will be probably ready to go alone so I don't know when that'll be but I'm healthy enough to keep going for, for a while but my dream would be to always be involved and probably be the chairman of my business and let the boys be the trainers and basically that's what Dad did with me in those early years and just one last point about your business and about your industry, David. There's a lot of headlines around about this time of the year, which are the good things about racing and, and the wonderful stories that come out of it. But inevitably, there are some bad times for racing and probably the sport has been through some bad times in recent times. Where do you think the industry sits now as uh, an industry that people can be confident that things are going in the right direction and if they're not going in the right direction then people will be found out yeah look it's 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 a lot better than it was 10 years ago and um look we've you know hit a few hurdles with the cobalt scenario and the integrity around um, the top-ups with, with the Aquanita case. Mm. But they've caught, you know, they've rectified that and we're in a lot better place than we were before that was straightened out. And hopefully they can just keep working at that. Um, you know, it was a disappointing period in racing, but um, it's a lot better for the clean-up and they did catch them. In some jurisdictions, they probably still haven't caught them. But when Lance Armstrong, the king of cycling, went down, they thought cycling would end. It's moved on and it's probably stronger than it was in the Armstrong era and a better sport. It's been a remarkable career in various parts of the world. It's been a delight for me to be able to chat to you so many times in the mounting yard at Flemington and various other race courses around the place and to stand in the middle and watch your training methods over the years and see you hold up a Melbourne Cup. Um, hopefully you will match the deeds of your famous father CS and get those Group 1 victories up on par. And like you said before, it, perhaps it would be fitting if the last one that you win to equal his deeds would be that Melbourne Cup again. Yeah, that'll be a huge thrill. We'll, we'll be trying our best anyway. David, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to have you on the program.
Lovely. Thanks, Ray. Good to talk to you, David. David Hayes joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives, and we'll have another very special edition of the program right here next week, same time. Hope you can join us then. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely, and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91.